God, thank you for this morning, and we're thankful for your word. Thank you that uh, we get to gather around it to hear it and to uh, delight in the birth of your son, but, but also in, in the rescue of your son so that we would be rescued. As we read this, I pray that you'd encourage us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, Matthew chapter 2, it, it concludes on a pretty grim note. <laughs> Uh, there's, uh, there's some stuff in here that doesn't quite make it into the nativity stories. And so, um, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's that I think because of that though, it, it makes it something that we don't often really think about when we consider the birth and childhood of Jesus. I mean, even, even his entrance into the temple, you think of that maybe, but when you read about this, it's, it's pretty eye opening. But what I love about it is how it connects really to so much of the Old Testament. Uh, and so Matthew is really keeping with his game plan here of like at the beginning of the book, he says, this is the genesis of Jesus. This is his genealogy. And here we're going to hearken back to another Old Testament story, really another Old Testament book uh, that uh, happens to follow right after Genesis. So um, let me read it for us. It starts in verse 13. Now, when they had departed they being the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And of course, we talked about Herod last week. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So, if you had to really summarize this passage, I mean, there's a lot going on, but if you had to summarize this passage or the events that take place here, I think at the outset, you can really clearly come down on at least one thing, which is that God's plan will not be thwarted. God's plan will not be thwarted. I mean, just consider how the, the narrative is organized. There's a first paragraph, there's a third paragraph, and snuggled up in the middle there is a second one about Herod killing all of these children. But when you look at the first paragraph and the third paragraph, there is a lot of overlap in terms of how they're organized and what is said. So the first paragraph, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Then the third paragraph, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. 
The first paragraph, the angel tells Joseph, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. In the third paragraph, the angel tells Joseph, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. In the first paragraph, it says he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. In the third paragraph, it says that he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And then in verse 15 of the first paragraph, it says that uh, he remained there until the death of Herod. But then in verse 22, in the third paragraph, it points out, it reminds us once again of the death of Herod by saying that his son Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod. And then, of course, it concludes in both, uh, in both paragraphs with a fulfillment of prophecy. So in verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. But then in verse 23, he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So, and what I want you to see there is that both these paragraphs really have a lot, of, a lot of overlap. There's just a lot of similarity beginning to end in both of them, which makes that middle paragraph stand out all the more. It makes that really seem like kind of the, the meat in this sandwich, right? This is something we need to focus on. And what is also interesting is that we've been told in the first paragraph, it's been implied, and then in the third paragraph, it is reiterated a couple of times, that Herod is dead, that Herod dies. In fact, he, we're told that he will die, and then they tell us what Herod does when Jesus is taken out of, out of Israel. So there, there, it's always been, in this whole narrative, it's always a foregone conclusion. Herod will meet his end. But let me tell you something that he did in the midst of all these things going on to give you a sense of what kind of person this is, and also the nature of Jesus' very early childhood. What's highlighted in the middle is Herod's evil plan after we know that he dies. Why does Matthew include this detail? Why does Matthew feel the need to tell us about what Herod did here? Mark doesn't talk about this. Mark doesn't talk about Jesus' childhood at all. Uh, John does not talk much in a biographical way that we would typically expect anyway. That John's gospel is very unusual. Uh, Luke's gospel doesn't quite zero in on this in, in the same way. Matthew points this out when Jesus gets away unscathed. Like, there's no actual harm done to Jesus. And even the boys in the story who, who are killed by Herod, they don't, we don't get their names. We don't learn about any of their descendants or their family members or genealogy. We, we don't get any of their history. They seem kind of insignificant in that sense. But I think some things this narrative does reveal and maybe reiterate would be like this. On the one hand, we see the ruthlessness of those who oppose the Messiah. And we talked last week about the, the desire for power versus humility when it comes to approaching and re really, really acknowledging who Jesus is as the King of Kings. That was Herod's big problem. All of Jerusalem was troubled by the birth and announcement of the King of the Jews being born. In Bethlehem, they don't really understand. But here we get a very clear picture of the utter ruthlessness and wickedness of guys like Herod. Really, of anybody who opposes the Messiah. Because when Jesus steps into the scene, it changes radically everything about how we relate to one another, how we relate to the world, who is really ultimately in charge. All these things come crashing down for guys like Herod. 
And so we shouldn't overlook this fact. Herod would go to such lengths to kill all these children just to ensure that maybe, maybe he could preserve his reign for a few more years. Another thing that this story reiterates for us is the sovereignty of God over all things, even over evil. Um, don't shy away from that, right? Like that's a difficult thing to wrestle with because here we're actually talking about the death of several, 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 several little children. Um, and, and yet in the midst of this, you see where prophecy is fulfilled, at least as it regards Jesus being taken out of Israel, brought back into Israel, being brought into Galilee, living in Nazareth. All of this has been hinted at and foretold in Scripture. Um, and, and, and the Lord uses this really wicked man, Herod, and his wicked plans to actually accomplish his purposes in the life of Jesus for his, for his people. Um, another thing that this shows us is the precarious nature of our salvation. Just, just, just looking at this story and remembering that Jesus is a baby, or he's a very young child. He, he is utterly dependent on Mary and Joseph for protection. Uh, the Lord orchestrates things, gives Joseph a dream to send them on their way to protect Jesus, to keep him safe. I think a lot of times we look straight ahead to the cross at Christmas. We, look, we jump straight ahead to the victorious life and death and, and new life, resurrection of Jesus, and we, we fail to really grasp just how fragile and frail Jesus' life is by virtue of the fact that he's a human being, by, by virtue of the fact that his parents are human beings and sinners to boot, uh, and that he lives in this fallen, broken, messed up world where men like Herod would rather destroy every two-year-old in a region than admit that maybe the Lord has another plan than, than him being the king, right? Uh, this, whole, this whole thing, I think, shows us just how precarious it all is, but I want to balance that with the fact that another thing that we see here is the determination of God to rescue his people. This highlights for us even more that salvation is just not an accident. The gospel is not some sort of fallback plan of the Lord, but rather this is, this is the Father's purpose and design from, from eternity past that he would send his son Jesus to be a human, fully God, but also fully man, which also means being fully a baby and fully dependent on other people for his safety and provision and protection for several years, fully subject to all the whims and wiles and evil of the men of the world. And yet the Lord is so determined to make sure that, that Jesus is saved and rescued uh, and that our salvation then can take place. And so... What I want us to see is the determination of God to rescue his people. The biggest, pick, the biggest point of this whole thing is that God's plan will not be thwarted or undermined. Um, on the one hand, I mean, you look at this passage, and there's three times that we're reminded that Herod dies, by the way. Verse 15, verse 19, verse 20. Uh, but we're reminded throughout this passage, the Lord can just outweigh his enemies. I love that. All right? the, the Lord's purposes won't be thwarted. He won't be undermined. He's going to do all that he pleases. And even the mightiest people who rise up against the Lord's purposes, he can just outweigh them if that's what he chooses to do. 
And now you can also destroy them, wipe them off of the face of the earth. We've seen that happen. <laughs> but with Herod, the Lord just waits. And I think it's highlighted for us because of how often we're reminded that Herod is going to die. Even as, even as Matthew tells us about this wicked plan of Herod's, we know this is just a matter of time, though, because this will not succeed. The, the Lord will have the day. It, it also, we see here how God's justice will prevail. Jesus is saved from Herod's wrath, but Herod cannot escape God's judgment. Herod is, is utterly subject to the, the purposes and the justice of God. God's redemptive plan always has been and always will be undefeated. I was reminded reading this of Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. It says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, that, that Babylonian king, right, a guy who, who ruled over Israelites at a time when they had been exiled to Babylon, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. And he's speaking of the God of the Jews. And praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's, that's a pagan king acknowledging the authority and rule of the God of the Bible. Uh, how much more so do we see Herod inadvertently pointing us to the rule and authority and sovereignty of God, even as he tries to thwart all of God's plans? He, he cannot defeat him. Now, it's, it's reasonable, like when we read this then, it's reasonable, I think, to ask, however, how the deaths of so many Jewish boys could be called redemptive in any way. We, we read this story we think this doesn't seem to advance the story too much, at least on the surface, because Jesus is totally safe. Everything is fine. Uh, but we've seen, on the one hand, okay, this shows us something about the nature of God's authority in the world and his purposes of redemption that can't be thwarted. But even so, we might ask, well, man, but at, at what cost? What, what's going on here with these, with these young children that Herod destroys? Given the size of Bethlehem, like the, the population, you're probably looking at between 10 and 30 toddlers that King Herod sets out to destroy. Uh, and we are given no reason to think that he doesn't accomplish that. Um, when Matthew refers to this story, however, he mentions a passage in Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 15. And it's, it's very close, actually, to what he, he quotes here almost exactly. It says, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. There's very, very good overlap there. Um, for the immediate context of Jeremiah 31, 15, I think it's good just to recognize that this is the, the exile of Israel. I think I've mentioned the exile of Israel a few times. I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page. So in, in the, the days of the kings of Israel, very quickly it split into two kingdoms. You had David's line of kings uh, overseeing Judah, the southern portion of Israel. And then you had another line of kings that weren't really organized by any hereditary succession. They're not related to David at all. But they oversee the northern kingdom, which is typically called Israel, even though we know that Israel really is the whole, it's the whole thing, but 
but when you're reading in the prophets and in Chronicles and Kings, that's kind of a, a shorthand for it. And so these lines of kings over time, especially in the north, but also in the south, they completely erode any adherence to God's word or obedience to him, faithfulness to him. All of it is done away with over the course of, over the course of time. Now in the north, it's very, very quick that this happens. In the south, it takes more time, but all these kings are they're sinful, wicked men. I mean, on some level, they all are going to mess things up. And one generation might be doing really well and actually humble before the Lord, but then the next completely undermines everything that came before him. And so eventually, these two nations, these two kingdoms are exiled. They're, they're captured, they're taken captive by foreign nations that then drag them out of the land to wherever those foreign nations are. To then, and to then put their own leaders and people and citizens in the land to really bring about a spread of their empire. That's how you, that's how you spread an empire. You don't, you don't leave the people there. You take them out and then you replace them with people you want to be there to share your values and language and origin stories and all that stuff. And so the exile refers to that time when the, the tribes of the north and the tribes of the south are taken out of the promised land, uh, not Totally, but very, I mean, a very large percentage are taken out of the promised land. Uh, Herod is actually a king because the Romans put him there to be king uh, after they inherited this area from the Babylonian Empire earlier on. So, the immediate context of Jeremiah 31 is the exile. He's referring to Rachel weeping. Of course, Rachel is the, one of the wives of, of Jacob, of Israel. Uh, she's the mother of several children in Israel, several tribes. You think of Joseph, you think of Benjamin, really the, among the most loved uh, children in that family. So Rachel's really important, and, and she becomes kind of a stand-in for really the, the mothers of Israel. Uh, and here we get a glimpse in Jeremiah, and then Matthew reiterates this, of really the incredible sadness and weeping that surely would have taken place if Rachel was alive at this time over the, the horrible state of things in Israel. In Jeremiah, it's because of the exile of Israel being taken out of the promised land. Uh, in Matthew, it's because of this destruction that is meant then to call us back to that day in Jeremiah. Matthew brings up what Jeremiah brings up in the context of the exile to hearken back those same kind of those same feelings, the same kind of energy there in, in the context of what's going on with the deaths of all these children. In Matthew's day, this passage, Jeremiah 31, 15, probably functioned kind of like a proverb uh, as a way to describe the, the feelings of the persecution of the Jewish people. And so they would maybe yes, something horrible would happen or people would be hurt or abused or, or injustice would seem to have the upper hand. They might say a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel is weeping for her children. That might, might have been something they, they would have thought of and said. And this is a passage, though, that is once again lived out among God's people in really devastating fashion. Um, before, it was exile. Here, it's the death of all these children. Um, but it's a passage that's not without hope. And that's interesting because Matthew does not mention verse, 30, or verse 16 in chapter 31. But if you, if you look down to Jeremiah 31, verse 16, it says, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. So there's this, there's this expectation. Jeremiah says, yeah, there's so much sadness over this exile and over everything that's happening. Rachel 
if she is seeing any of this, is incredibly sad, mourning, weeping over these events. But, but we'll come back. We'll come back to the promised land. The Lord is not done with his people. The Lord has purposes for us. And if you remember, Jeremiah 31 is a really important chapter in the whole Bible. This is where we learn of the new covenant that God will make with his people, where he will give them a new heart. Verse 33 says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is all the same really important chapter in Jeremiah. And I think it's all tied together. There's this incredible sadness over, over loss and exile and destruction of God's people. But then there's this hope that the Lord might actually do something redemptive with his people. That he might bring them back into the promised land. And then Jeremiah absolutely stamps his seal of approval on all of it when he says, no, the Lord's purpose is actually to give us a new covenant. We were exiled because we failed to uphold the old covenant. But here, now as the Lord brings us back in, he will keep us here, not by works of our own doing, but by actually giving us a new covenant where his law is planted on our hearts. This covenant can't be violated. This covenant can't can't lead to exile one day because the Lord will keep us here. He will bring about the righteous life and the righteous ways of his people. He will make it secure. He'll make it happen. Jeremiah has a whole lot going on there. And I think Matthew brings up this one verse to maybe bring all of that into our, into our frame of mind. Because that is what he is, that, that's what's going on here in this, in this story. I want to bring up maybe the biggest thing that, that goes on here in terms of Old Testament connections. This whole narrative, this whole story deliberately looks back to the most formative moment of redemption in Israel's history. We're hearing about Jeremiah. We're hearing about the people going in exile, but coming back in redemption. We're hearing about God's new covenant where he'll keep them in this promised land. What does that sound like, though? What does that point us back to? And what does this whole story point us back to? It points us back to to Exodus. And it shows us that really in Christ, there's a new Exodus that is taking place. And just think about some of the parallels here in the story, some of the the key story points. We have another firstborn rescued from destruction. Remember the plagues of the firstborn, where all the Israelite children were subject to the the wrath of of God's destruction, except for the Passover, where they were saved and rescued. But all the Egyptian firstborn sons were killed. Remember that. Here, another Jewish firstborn son is redeemed from certain death and destruction, by the Lord. We have another harrowing nighttime escape. There's no mistaking, there's no accident when Matthew says that in the first instance when they left to go to Egypt, that it was at nighttime. That's also when the Israelites were brought out of Egypt, when they left Egypt for once and for all, right? It happened at night. There's another journey to Israel that takes place in this story. Uh, another journey from Egypt into Israel, just like, just like the Exodus. However, instead of a multitude of Israelites, the central figure here is Jesus. According to Matthew, all of this is, even the Exodus, is really pointing to Christ. He mentions Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, which says, and this is the Lord speaking, he says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. 
and out of Egypt I called my son. And what's interesting is Matthew only reads half of that. Out of Egypt I called my son. He doesn't reference the when Israel was a child I loved him. The point is still very clear. I think it's made even more clear though. In Matthew's mind, Israel is Jesus. Or rather, maybe better said, Jesus is the true and better Israel. Out of Egypt I called my son. That used to refer to the people of Israel being brought out in the Exodus. But Matthew says, no, 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 no. That's actually a prophetic word that is not just about the past, but that, as so often happens in the Old Testament and prophetic uh, passages like that, it's looking ahead to fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And here he says, look, the Exodus has always really been pointing to the rescue of Jesus, not just his safety here, but rather the exodus, the rescue, the redemption that is found in him. So in Christ, the redemption of Israel's sons and really of all of God's people is found. Because Jesus lives, our hope of salvation is preserved. And in fact, Jesus' obedient life becomes ours by faith. You may be asking, why, why couldn't Jesus have just died as a baby? Right? Why, why, what, what would have happened if Herod had killed Jesus then and there? Would, would that effectively have been the same thing as the cross? And Jesus is going to die eventually. He's going to die at the hands of unjust, cruel rulers and authorities. That is going to happen. Why not just when he was two instead of when he was 32? Why do we need that? Well, we need the obedience of Jesus. We need his life. We, we need his righteousness. We need his perfection to be, actually be lived out so that at the cross, he doesn't just die in our place, but he also gives us, he exchanges with us his righteousness for our sin. He takes our sin on himself at the cross. We know that, I think, probably better than any other part of the story. But sometimes we overlook the fact that we actually need Jesus' righteousness to be given to us so that we can be made right and, and holy before the Lord. And it's not because of anything we do. It's just because of Jesus and what he has done for us that he gives us that righteousness that we might be able to stand before the Lord, that we might be saved from, from destruction and wrath. One day Jesus will be killed by the rulers and authorities of Israel and Rome in the place of the true sons of Israel who, who are united to Christ, who is the true Israel, by faith. Jesus' life is meant to be our life. We're, we're meant to be found in him. And just as he has been rescued and, and preserved and kept from the destruction of Herod, if we are found in him, we too are rescued, preserved, and kept from the destruction of sin. And so on this day, on the day when Jesus does die, Satan thought, just like Herod probably thought, that he had the upper hand, but he actually initiated his own downfall and destruction. I think of the, the uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, where Martin Luther sings, Lo, his doom is sure. Speaking of Satan. Think of, even in this story, how certain the destruction of Herod is. We, we see that so clearly mentioned again and again and again. Matthew does not want us to lose sight of the fact that that the evil and the wicked man will not, just will not survive God's judgment. But Jesus endures. He lives forever. 
and he lives forever to intercede for his people who are in him by faith. Which is why then that God's people can always take comfort in Christ. Romans 8.28 says that uh, uh, God works all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. I think, I think Romans 8.28 is really fleshed out and, and made true for us right here in Matthew chapter 2. I mean, you think of just all the horrific things that are going on here in this story. Uh, the, the weeping of Rachel. The, the utter sadness, and really bound up in this, is just all the centuries of suffering that God's people have endured. And yet all of it, all of it in Christ, is, it, it's undone, it's, it's unraveled. Or, or maybe a better way to put it is that, is that in Christ, there's a renewal that's taking place. There's a redemption that's taking place. And, and there's something new that the Lord is doing. There's, there's salvation at hand. There are good things, good purposes in store for God's people. I think this is really important for us to remember. Um, I think this story is a really good reminder for us just as we go through life in a fallen world, as we witness the ruthlessness of, of those who hate God and hate his people, as we bear witness to that, it can be disheartening. You can think, man, where, what direction is this world going in? Is there hope for me or for my children or my grandchildren or their children when it comes to following the Lord and, and knowing him? At what cost will it come for future generations to trust the Lord and, and be his people? But here in this story, we see that no, 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 no. There's every reason to take comfort in following Christ, not to, not to shy away from it or to be fearful and fretful about it, anxious about what it might cost, but instead to recognize that actually this is, this is the only way to life. By following Christ, even in the face of the wickedness of the world around us, by clinging to him, that's where we find our comfort. That's where we find our joy. Because apart from him, those things just don't exist. As we feel the weight of death pressing in on us with no way of escape, you, you consider just the nature of this story and the, uh, the desperation with which Joseph led Mary and Jesus out of Israel into Egypt and then back out of Egypt into Israel. And then when he got to Israel, was afraid of the son of Herod being in charge of things. And so he says, I'm going to live maybe a little bit on the outskirts of Israel instead of right here in the middle. Um, in, in all of this, the, the weight of death and destruction is just kind of, it just hovers over everything. Uh, the Ward family has been watching the Lord of the Rings movies. And one of the, uh, we do this now two years in a row. I was about to say every year, but every year for two years now. And um, one of the things that I, I find so striking about it is that as, as uh, the evil forces of Sauron and Mordor rise in strength and grow in their, in their spread, darkness spreads to cover the land. And in fact, they can only, these, these soldiers, these armies, can only really go as far as the darkness will cover because they can't really stand to be, to be in the light. That's, it's, it's too overwhelming for them. And, but, but it becomes very ominous as you watch this, the third and final movie. As the, the clouds spread and the darkness spreads, you feel the, the growing weight of the wickedness and evil that's spreading over the land. In, in Christ, we can feel that weight. We can see that weight. We can acknowledge that it's there. But, but we can also live with incredible hope and joy and comfort in Him. Uh, we, we, can, we can look to Him and, and find uh, encouragement. And we can find joy, we can find comfort. 
uh, not just this time of year, uh, but, but throughout the year, remembering that Jesus has, he has been through all of it. He has been subject to all the wickedness of man. Uh, and the, the Lord has used it all to actually bring about the redemption of his people, even in spite of the wickedness of, of man, even in spite of our own wickedness. So, a final question then. How might the rescue of Christ and the salvation that's found in him be your escape? All right, that, that is an important question to always bear in mind because we'll always be tempted to look for escape in a million other places, in a million other people and things. Uh, you know what, if I just had this, or if I was just in this, in this position or in this spot in, in life or this stage of, of life, then, then that, would be, that would be everything. All, all these difficult things that I'm dealing with, they'll, they'll fade away because of, of where I know things will be in the future. Uh, it's easy to, to look to ourselves I can make this better. I can change things. If I just have a change of mind or if I just do these things, say these things, if I, if I act this way or whatever, then I can sort of change the circumstances around me. But the only, the really the only way we can escape from the, the weight and the, the darkness and the, the destructiveness sometimes of this world is actually going to be by finding it in Christ. We've got to look to Him. Let Him be your escape. Let him be the, the one that you look to to find rest, to find comfort, to find hope. Uh, rest in him. I, that's one of my favorite uh, things that we find in Scripture as we consider just the nature of Jesus' work and, and redemption is that he is our rest. Uh, he is our rescue. And, and, and that following Christ, yeah, it means obedience to the word of God it means walking in faith but one of the ways that we obey the word of God and walk in faith is by sitting down and resting in Christ finding him to be all that you need and, and being being uh, taking comfort in his presence I'm going to conclude with Psalm 2 verses 10 through 12 this is a psalm written intentionally to the kings of the earth telling them how they should perceive and relate to the King of Kings, the Son of God. Um, Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12 says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's what we're called to do here, to take refuge in Christ. Let, let his rescue and redemption be ours uh, by faith. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much uh, for, for your word. We're thankful that in your providence, you, you orchestrated things and used these circumstances in such a way to remind us, to show us not just your rescue in the moment, but, but the purposes of Christ in our salvation that a new exodus would take place. That, that just as we, or just as your people in the Old Testament were exiled due to their sin, cut off from your people, cut off from your presence, and yet you brought them back through this new covenant, 
we thank you that in Christ you have rescued us even as if it was from Egypt itself and brought us back into the promised land, back into the realm of your goodness and your provision and your, your providence. Lord, help us to, to rest in Christ and to settle into the place where he has put us for safety, for joy, uh, for your glory, for the name, uh, for your name that it might be spread through all the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.